right. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, kids, if you didn't go already, you can uh, go ahead and go to your kids, City Light Kids class. Parents, we have volunteer servant leaders in the back who will take them to the room, or you can take them if you like. As always, we have our Spanish Bible study going on right now. So if you're here and that is your uh, first language or heart language, uh, we would love for you to hear the word in Spanish in room 120. Uh, please open to Luke. If you don't have one of these Luke booklets, please raise your hand. We'd love to give you one as our gift to you uh, for you to help learn how to read the Bible yourself. And as we prepare, we're going to take our tithe and they're going to come up front and do that with us as well. A quick thing before we jump into Luke is that, as you've heard over the last few weeks, we've been clarifying and communicating uh, that we have a building potentially opening up. Y'all can go ahead and come down uh, with the top of the building potentially opening up. I think we have some Luke booklets down here in the front, uh, if somebody, somebody right here would like one. Uh, on the 27th at 12 p.m., they're meeting to give a final uh, word or stamp of approval on this building. So last week... We kind of explained the process to you. If you missed that sermon, please check it out. The address is 2929 Graham Road, Falls Church, Virginia, which is like four minutes from here if you want to drive by it. So on February 27th, Thursday at 12 p.m., they're going to finally decide. Uh, if it's a yes on that day, I will have keys in my hand Thursday afternoon uh, for us to be able to use. So yes, please be praying. Please be praying. And in light of that, uh, they have graciously allowed us to come into the building together Wednesday night to pray. So Wednesday from 6 to 7, we're going to pray, and they're going to let us in to pray uh, for that Thursday meeting, but just to pray for the building in general as well, that God would use it to reach that city. As we say, our core value number two is that we are dependent on prayer. We want to live this out in every way possible. So this Wednesday from 6 to 7, please join us at that location, 2929 Graham Road, Falls Church, Virginia. Uh, there's an old church there. Uh, we would love for you to be there 6 to 7. If you cannot be there with us, please grab your family, grab whoever's with you, and pray together. Uh, we really want to seek the Lord, not just for Thursday's decision, but that whatever happens, the Lord really use it, and that everything we've asked or imagined that God could do through a community center church, he will do through City Light, and that we just want God's blessing in hand on that. So would you please join us this Wednesday, if possible. So Luke uh, chapter 9 and 10, we're going to be in both of these. I'm going to read two verses from each one to get us started, and then we're going to kind of work through both passages at the same time, so, so to speak. So uh, in your Luke booklet or in your Bible, uh, Luke 9, 1 through 2 says this, And he called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure diseases, and then he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And then Luke 10, after they went out, came back, Luke 10, verse 1, After this, instead of twelve now, the Lord appointed seventy-two. He sent them out on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And these two verses, three verses, are going to give us uh, the scriptural thought and idea from this passage about what does it look like to be sent out by Jesus into the world on his behalf, in his name, to do the things that Jesus wants you to do. We've been in a series called The Process, and so today is the last day, the last week of our process for us to learn how did Jesus go about changing the world? What was his plan? What was his process? What we've said is that there's a desire in our hearts. Great. That desire is a good starting point, but a desire is not enough. You have to act. You have to plan. You have to execute. And so we want to say, how can we take what's in our hearts, put it into the world, and see real fruit from it? And what we've learned, and which is clearly should be obvious to most of us, is that we should model the way of Jesus. So the last few weeks, this has been super important for us as a church. We've looked from Luke 4 all the way to Luke 10. In your seat, there's um, a little, a little four, 4 by 6 sheet that explains kind of the chart we've, sent, we've put on the screen, but I know people in the back can't see it. This right here has been uh, what we've explained as the process that Jesus instated from Luke 4, explaining Isaiah 61. Uh, these are the core roots of our missional strategy here at City Light. These are the words we use to play it out. On the back are the practical implications of each word. So remember, Sundays are a launching pad, not a landing place. We come here to be equipped and sent out to go into the world and make a difference, to come back, be equipped and sent out to go into the world and make a difference. This is how we hope to do that based off how Jesus did that. And so this is important for all of us to understand because this is how you implement your everyday life. So we've talked about how, hey, first of all, there's no shortcuts. There's no shortcuts to the process. There's no side door. There's no way to cheat your way out of this. We've talked about how the process is encountered by an, is empowered by an encounter with Jesus. 
So if you have no encounters with Jesus, no time with the Lord, or if you haven't met him at all in the first place, then there's no power for your work going forward. So for some of you in the room, you're here, and you may not even be a Christian, and I'm so glad that you're here today. And I want to show you how the only real power to make a difference in the world, if that's your heart, is the power that comes from God through meeting Jesus. If you really want to be a part of changing the world, the first step is to meet Jesus. And I hope you do that today. For many of you, you really want to go about changing the world, but you haven't pursued the presence of Jesus to get the power of Jesus in your day-to-day life. The process starts with a call, with an encounter with Jesus. As we talked about last week, the process continues with on-the-job training. This is so important for us as we think through what does it look like to see people reached and then to see them trained up and to see them sent back into the world to reach others. Well, it looks like not a classroom, not even necessarily a Sunday service, which these things are great. It looks like on-the-job training where somebody who knows somewhat what to do is sharing the gospel, serving the poor. They're living their life out every day, is bringing somebody along and showing them how to do that. You learn the best in the field with feet to the fire. We want to be a people who train, not necessarily in the classroom, but on the field, in the field, in the harvest. And so today, the last day, is Jesus sending them out. So I want you to see from Luke 4 to Luke 10 how important this is for Jesus to explain his ministry in Luke 4, to call disciples in Luke 5, to use Luke 6 through 8 to train them, and then Luke 9 and 10, he sends them out. This is literally what we want to do every day. This is exactly how Jesus did it. He calls them, he trains them, he sends them. He calls them, he trains them, he sends them. He calls them, he trains them, he sends them. And this is how we want to see it played out in the life of our church. It's just so important for us to understand the way of Jesus so that we can live out the way of Jesus. So today is that final step. What does the end of the process look like? What do we do at the end? Where does this all culminate in? The title of our sermon today is You Are Sent. You Are Sent. And I want you to understand that being sent means that you've been sent by somebody. Meaning that your call in life is to fulfill somebody else's desires and ambitions. That you have been created by God, for God, to do God's work. So if you spend your life thinking you've been created by something else to do your life and your work, it's going to feel empty, which is why some of you feel that way now. You're spending your life doing your ambitions, your desires, your way. And the whole purpose of your life is to fulfill someone else's, namely God's, desires and way. You have been sent by God with his ambitions and his goals in mind. So if you live with your ambitions and your goals, it's going to come up empty, and it's going to feel very dry, and it's not going to do what you hoped it would do because it's not included in how you were designed to live. This is really important for all of us to understand that we've been sent every day with the divine appointment in mind to really live according to God's plan every day in your life. That's why Sunday is a launching pad. That's why you come here to be sent out, to be reminded that you're already sent by God into the world. This is so important for us because our mindset usually is to shift to land on Sunday. We spend the whole week trying to land on Sunday or to bring somebody to Sunday, which is great. Please bring your friends. Please, people need to hear the gospel. This is great. But what God has sent you to do is to go live that out Monday through Saturday, to be encouraged and challenged here, to be equipped, to be convicted of sin, to be repentant, whatever it may be, and then to go do that, to go in the battlefield. And our mindset as a church needs to shift constantly towards that. It's a launching pad, not a landing place. You are sent every day by someone else, namely God, to fulfill someone else's ambitions and dreams. And if you live your whole life for your ambitions, your dreams, and your goals, it's going to come up short. Which is why so many of you feel empty and dissatisfied and discontent in your life right now. So I have an encouraging word for you today. There's a way out of that. It's by following someone else's dream, living out someone else's ambition, fulfilling someone else's goals. And you're going to find your life and your love and your contentment in that. It's the opposite way you've been trained to think. So from these two passages, I've pulled out ten words. These ten words are going to give us a characteristic, a description of what does it look like to live sent out by Jesus into the world. This will help you know not only what to do, but it will help you, if you're a follower of Christ, evaluate how you're living. Are these ten words descriptive of your life? Are these 10 words descriptive of what you want to do? Are these 10 words descriptive of how you live? And for those of you who don't know Christ who are here, I want you to think about how this resonates with your life. What are 10 words you would use to describe your life? What purpose is behind your life? 
And I want to help you understand that God has a purpose for you to know him and to make him known. And that these ten words can be descriptors for you as well. And these ten words are going to help you navigate what does it look like to become and live as a follower of Jesus. Which is why God brought you here today to do. So here's ten words. We're going to start with each word. There will be a passage from Luke 9 and 10. That's how we're going to summarize the whole thing. So the first word is imitation. Write it down somewhere. Imitation. This is Luke 9, 1 through 2, what we just read. He called the 12 together. He gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So if you've been paying any attention at all, or if you've read this part of the Bible, if you're new here today, then I'll explain it to you. This is basically what Jesus spent the last several however much time doing. Teaching and healing, teaching and healing. He calls people, he brings them along. Hey, you're going to learn on the job with me as I do it. What am I going to go do? I'm going to go teach the word of God. I'm going to go proclaim the word of God. I'm going to go heal and bring about the ministry of the word of God, body and soul. You're going to watch me do it. Great. They learn. Now, Jesus says, it's your turn. You go teach. You go heal. Their job is not to have a great plan, to execute some new idea. Their job is to copy, to imitate. Your life, once again, is not to fulfill your own desires and ambitions, but someone else's, and not to make your own way, but to copy someone else's. Do you see how this is totally will wreck us because we're told our whole life to be the best you can be, make your own path, do your thing. And Jesus says, no, follow my way, fulfill my ideas, my plans, and do it the way I did it. Copy me. And people like me especially, I'll just, I'm bent to make my own way, to carve my own path, to do it the way I want to do it. This is what I'm hardwired to do. And learning constantly that I am a copier and imitator of Jesus is something that takes a lot of work for myself and my own life. Jesus said in John 5, 19, this is so interesting. When Jesus is on the earth and he's doing ministry, he says that he only does what he sees the Father doing. Isn't this crazy? Jesus, the Son of God, explains the way he does ministry by saying, I only do what I see the Father doing. And if you took some time to really think about what in the world that means, it's going to really help you discern what does it look like to follow Jesus yourself. See, Jesus, in some sense, was an imitator of what he already saw the Father doing. Jesus was following the Father's will, the Father's plan. Every situation that Jesus encountered, his first thought and idea was, what does the Father want to do in this place? And so it is with us. Jesus was following the Father and seeing what he's doing, and now we're called to be the same, to follow the way of Jesus, to see how he does things. This is how Paul describes his ministry in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. This is what we should all be able to say. I'm telling you, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's it, right? It doesn't take seminary. It doesn't take years of training. You don't, you don't have to go to some Christianity 101 class. These are all great things, okay? I went to seminary twice. Uh, I, we've done Christianity 101. These things are great, okay? These are helpful. I'm not saying they're bad. But what I'm saying is the primary way to live is to simply copy someone else's example. You're following Jesus, and then you're asking other people to follow you as you follow Jesus. And because you're a sinner just like me, we're going to not do it right sometimes, and that's okay because we're following Jesus. So we're not saying, follow me, I'm perfect. We're saying, follow me, I'm trying to give you an understanding of who Jesus is, who perfect is. So if you're here today, you're like, man, I don't know how I can make a difference in the world. I don't have the skill set. I haven't been a Christian that long. Whatever it may be, I want to encourage you that your only job is to copy someone else. That's literally it. Doesn't matter what you're good at, doesn't matter your skill set, all those things, use those things for Jesus, yes and amen. The way you're going to make a difference in the world is to be a good copier, not an originator. To be a good copier, a good imitator. This is so important for us because we cannot imitate that which we don't know. If your design is to be an imitator and you don't know the thing which you are trying to imitate, how frustrating is your life going to be? That's what you were made to do. You can't copy something you don't know. You can't copy something you can't see. If our sight is blurry, think about this, your art will be messy. If it's not clear the thing you're looking at, right, that's why with my kids it's a lot easier to trace something because it's right in front of them than to look at it and do that. It would be much more difficult to close your eyes and try to draw a hand. Which hand is going to be the best representation? It's going to be the one that's traced, the one that has the most clarity, the one that's as present and right there. You cannot copy something that which you don't know. This is so important for us, super, super important. Our effectiveness will never go farther than our knowledge of Jesus. You see what I'm saying? 
And knowledge, not just like facts, not just like I got all the facts down, but knowledge in terms of experiencing him, following him, learning more about him as you attempt to do the things he's asking you to do, knowledge through obedience, knowledge through learning. Our effectiveness will never go farther than our knowledge of Jesus. And hear me, because we are a body and the head is Jesus, the effectiveness we have is not dependent on a pastor or on a leader, but on a group. So if how you walk affects how I walk, and if how you walk affects how we all walk, and if God looks at us and says, how am I going to bless this group, and he sees, you know, 10% doing this one thing, whatever, you see what I'm saying? How you live your life directly affects how City Light impacts the world. Do you really have to believe this? Not just me or somebody else on stage. How you live your life directly affects how we can reach the world. Because we cannot go farther than our understanding of Jesus. That's our, far as we, that's our level. So to the level we understand and have walked with Jesus will be the level of our impact. Because you cannot copy something you don't know. And so I want to encourage each one of us to pursue imitation, to get to know the Lord, to be with him. So our summary statement here is to live sent is to imitate Jesus. And to help others do the same. That's something you want to write down. To live sent is to imitate Jesus. So your question is, how often do I imitate Jesus? Do I even know what I'm imitating? And am I helping others do the same thing? That's what it looks like to live sent. Jesus does the same with us as he does with the disciples. He says, go. He empowers us. So you say, what do I do? Okay, well, the first thing you do is you imitate Jesus. And you help others do the same thing. The second word is trust. Trust. Look at... uh, Chapter 9, verse 3, he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. <laughs> it's like, man, bro, really? Like, I can't even bring two tunics? <laughs> what is the point here? Is Jesus just trying to be like, rah, rah, rah? No, he's trying to build trust. He's trying to force them into a space where they have to trust God. Here's the statement I want you to write down. There will be no acts of faith without a foundation of trust. You cannot, hear me, you control people, you cannot control everything and walk by faith at the same time. You cannot. You cannot have your ducks in a row. You cannot have your plan made. You cannot have your risk and reward calculations done well. You can't do the math on that. You cannot control and trust at the same time. And some of you won't act in faith because you won't release control. And because you don't act in faith, you don't see God do anything. You see what I'm saying? That's your first step. Lord, I release control. The outcome is up to you. I'll take a step of faith. I literally have no idea how it's going to work out, but it's clearly an act of obedience. I'm going to trust you. It's exactly in that space that the Lord does all his work. And the reason maybe your Christian life has been pretty boring or, or unpowerful is because you haven't put yourself in that space. You've tried to follow Jesus and maintain control, and you're calculating risk and reward with everything that you do. And Jesus is telling you, oh, I want to do so much through your life, but you have to release control. You have to trust. Why would he send them out with nothing? He had supporters. He had people in the ministry who could buy them the stuff that they needed. Why would he send them out with nothing? To build a foundation of trust. They go out once with nothing, the Lord provides. Trust goes up. Because trust is high, acts of faith are active. Because I trust, I act. Because I trust, I act. And if you don't trust, I'm telling you, like, trust with your whole life. You won't act. And if there are no acts of faith, you will not see God do much in your life. It requires a release of control. Trust. It's the thing about this with my kids. When we think about faith sometimes, you think about it like a blind leap in the dark. And I think that's bad theology. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark because we have a ton of information, okay? So it's not necessarily, oh, I hope this works out. Faith is an active trust in a, in a person, not a blind leap in the dark. So you're saying, it's like when my kids, when we go into the basement and it's dark, they'll only go if I'm holding their hand. But they'll go with me. Even though it's the same basement, the same darkness, the same things they're scared of, they'll go with me. They won't go by themselves. And I want you to think about faith in the same way. See, I'm going to step into this dark place, but Jesus said, I'll go with you. And as I step into this difficult place, Jesus said, I'll be with you. As I go into this darkness and I can't see what's in front of me, Jesus says, I can see, I'll be with you. And you have to think about it that way as you exercise faith. Not that you know the outcome, not that you have all the information, but Jesus promised to be with you. And because Jesus is with you, you can trust. He died for you. There's nothing he's not going to do for you. 
that you need. So trust. There will be no acts of faith without a foundation of trust. One of my prayers, and some of the staff people would know, would be able to tell you this, that I've prayed for a heart of faith for City Light. That God would give us a unique heart of faith. That we would really believe God. So to live sent is to act in faith. Here it is. To make decisions that require trust in God's characteristics and promises. So what decisions are you making that necessitate trust in God and who God says he is? Where, God, if you're not that, this is a bad decision. But if you are that, I can trust you. Have you made any decisions that necessitate trust, that require trust? Not in what God said he would do, exactly how he'd work it out, just in who God is. And the promises he's made to you through the scriptures. Are there any decisions you've made with those two things all you're holding on to? That's it. Those are the kind of decisions that God uses to really change the world, okay? Trust. So first, imitation. Second, trust. The third word is ownership. Write down ownership. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's your job. It's your job. I love this verse here. This is feeding the 5,000, right? They had this big group there. The disciples are like, what are we going to do? Send them away. They're like, Jesus, they're on the job with Jesus right now. They're like, Jesus, man, your life is hard. <laughs> this is too much work. We just did a bunch, and now people want more. Just send them home, all right? It's dinner time, all right? It's time to wrap up, you know? It's like when my, it's dinner time with my kid. You know, let's put everybody to bed, okay? Everybody's going to bed right now. I ain't parenting no more, okay? Everybody's going to bed. I'm done. That's how they feel. I'm just done, okay? And Jesus looks at them, and he says, you give them something to eat. There's at least 5,000 men, which means there's probably fifteen to 20,000 people. There's 12 disciples, and they're poor, and Jesus looks at them and says, you give them something to eat. You got to be thinking, what? What? And this is so true for us. So often we're asking Jesus for something, and he just looks at you and says, that's what you're here for. You do it. You do it. We say, Lord, would you please change our city? And he just looks at you and says, you do it. Go, share the gospel. Teach the word. Proclaim the power of Jesus. Serve with kindness. Help people. You do it. We say, Lord, would you please restore marriages around us? Say, you do it. Get in the mess. Inconvenience yourself. You do it. You say, Lord, would you please save my friends? He says, you do it. You go share the gospel. You be the love of Jesus in their life. Don't give up on them. You do it. And so many times we're asking the Lord to do something, and he just looks back and says, you do it. And then we're like, no, that wasn't what I asked. I asked you to do it. And he says, I'm going to do it through you. Now, here's the point. It's not because you can do it. The disciples could not feed thousands of people. That was literally an impossible thing he asked them to do. So what is he asking them to do? I think this is what he's saying. God says, if you start it, I will finish it. If you start it, I will finish it. There's no way they could feed 1,000 people. And what do they have? They had two fish and five loaves, which is a Lunchable, right? This is a Lunchable they're bringing to Jesus. And would you please feed? All, it's like if we just had one Lunchable for lunch today, and we said, Lord, would you please feed everybody in the room? That's insane. That's what they brought to him. They're like, Lord, this is what I have. And he's like, great, I can use that. I can use two, I can use two fish and five loaves. You know what I won't use is nothing. And we're like, Lord, here's nothing. Would you please make something? Because we know God can make something out of nothing. We like that. God made a whole world out of nothing. Of course he can do that. But the way God has designed this to be, in his way, he said, you start it, I'll finish it. And I wonder how many things he's asking you to start that you're afraid you can't accomplish so you don't get it started. You're praying for something big, and he looks at you and says, you do it. And you say, I can't do it. And he says, that's the point. That's the point. Ownership is the word here. You do it. You give them something to eat. Hey, City Light, you go serve people. Go share the gospel. Go bless your neighbor. Go be active in this community. You do it. Can we save this community? Of course we cannot. Can we change anybody's heart? Of course we can. Can we put anybody in heaven by our own good works? Of course we cannot. But God says, if you start it, I will finish it. If you attempt the mission, I will complete the mission. And this is how it works for us. But without trust, we won't take ownership. So to live sent is to take personal ownership of the well-being of those around you. Write that down. To live sent is to take personal ownership of the well-being of those around you. Am I taking personal responsibility of the well-being of those around me? 
So one of the ways we train our servant leaders here and some of our, our leaders is to say, because we're one, right, your problem is my problem, my problem is your problem. So just because you're in kids and I'm the, I'm the preacher today doesn't mean that what happens in kids isn't my problem, if I can do anything about it. Just because I'm not a greeter today and I walk in and I see a sign down doesn't mean I don't pick the sign up, just because I'm not a greeter. It's our collective problem. Anything that's wrong is our, we're collectively in this together. And so we say we all take ownership of what's happening today, each one of us. And though we may serve in departments, we're all willing to help in any way that's needed. And that's what we want for us. That's what God calls us to is to take ownership of what God wants us to do, of the well-being of those around you. Take ownership of your neighborhood. Take ownership of your workspace. Take ownership of your family. Take ownership. Do what God's asked you to do. You do it, he says. Sacrifice is the next word, the fourth word, sacrifice. The text is Luke 9, 23 through 25. He said to all of them, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You can preach a whole sermon about this. I won't do that. The simple thing here is that we are sent to sacrifice. The purpose of sending you is so that you would sacrifice for him. There is no living a sent life, a purpose-filled life, a Jesus-following life without sacrifice. That doesn't work. Once again, this is why you have trust. If there's no trust, there will be no sacrifice. And some of us won't sacrifice because we won't release control because we don't trust. But without sacrifice, there's no act of God. You see how this thing works out for us. We're sent to sacrifice. There is no sending without sacrifice. There's no purpose without pain. There is no victory without a fight. And if we want to see God be victorious, then we must battle. We must be in the fight. We must sacrifice and give things up. Get this. We will make a difference to the extent that we are willing to sacrifice. The difference we make will match the willingness on our parts to, to sacrifice. It says, take up your cross and follow him. Now, you have to see Jesus' whole point, if anybody wants to, what? Save his life. Then you lose it. So what is Jesus saying? I want you to sacrifice and just have a terrible life and everything because I'm worth it. He could say that. He's God. He could totally say that, and that would be okay. But he doesn't say that. You know what he says? He says, I love you so much. I want to bless you. I love you. You're my child. You know what? I want you to save your life. Let me tell you how to do it. Are you ready right now? How do I save my life? He says, lose it. I'm like, wait, what? No, no, no. That's different. Uh, what? Uh, what? Jesus? I want to say, yeah, you want to bless me. Oh, yes, Lord. How do I do that? What's the step? Step one? Lose it. Is there anything else? No, just lose it. You want me to save my life? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, lose it. You're like, that doesn't make sense, Jesus. And he's like, I know. Reading the Bible, I explain to people, is like opposite day, every day. Just whatever I think, Jesus says the other thing. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> sure, I guess. <laughs> I got to learn. It's opposite day. It's just, it's just the opposite of what I think all the time. If I want to save my life, I'll lose it. So when Jesus asks you to sacrifice, he is asking you to save your life. When he's asking you to give something up, he's asking to release capacity for him to bless you more than that. He can't give your hands something while they're clenched on something else. And you're holding on so tight to some things, and Jesus is just like, if you would let that go, you would see the blessing of God. And I'm not saying that means, like, if you give $10, you get $100 back, right? That's not, that's not necessarily what's happening here. But fulfillment of life, his presence, his power, his blessing, his provision, it could very well be material if the Lord so deems it that way. God says if you will sacrifice, most importantly, you will reap the reward in heaven. Though this life may not work out how you think it will, though your sacrifice may not equate to some temporal blessing, Jesus says if you give it up now, you have millions and millions of years to reap the interest that you sow from that moment. So your, your little sacrifice now is recuperating interest that will build for you to experience the blessing of for eternity. This is what Jesus wants for you. Sacrifice. If you save your life, you'll lose it. And the opposite is true. If you attempt to save your life, your goals, your ambitions, your desires, your way, then you'll lose it. 
So if you attempt you to get your life your way, you're going to lose it. And some of you, I'm telling you, you're here. A friend brought you here. You're trying to follow the way of the world. You're hearing the gospel. And I'm telling you, your experience is accurate because you're trying to save your life your way, your desires, your dreams. And it's not working. And you're frustrated. And it stinks. And Jesus has come to say, if you would just lose your life for me, you would get it back. And you would get real life. A God life, a God-filled life, an eternal life in heaven with Jesus. You would get real life if you would just let go of the life you're living now. Some of you, this is true for your sin patterns. You're holding on to a particular sin habit because you think it makes you feel good or you think it helps you in that moment. And Jesus is saying, if you would only let go, if you would only release, then I could bless. If you would only sacrifice, then you would experience life. And he wants you to release and let go. Sacrifice. Okay, to live sent is to sacrifice daily while remembering the reward. And we still got like five more words. Okay, we got to go fast. Humility. I love this. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. That's hilarious. We act like that. Yeah, we all, we all do that. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Opposite day. Opposite day. Jesus says, if you'll be the least, you'll be the greatest. We're like, no, I'd like to be the greatest. He's like, yeah, I know. If you'll be the least, you'll be the greatest. You're like, Jesus, that's not how it works. And Jesus is like, I made the world. I know how it works. And you're like, okay, whatever. You know, and then you follow him. The Bible says, James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Turn to your neighbor and say, be humble. Might be a word from the Lord for them today. Be humble. Say it like you mean it. Say it like you're mad at them. Be humble. Say it like you know what's in their heart. Be humble. Say it. Be humble. Like, this is a word of the Lord, okay? I have a prophetic word for you. Be humble, okay? I know that's a word from the Lord for you today. I need you to be humble. Be humble. This is super important for us because this attitude goes into everything that we do. We, we've talked about how without humility, there is no unity. Without unity, there is no blessing from the Lord on the work, right? Uh, Psalm 133 says, blessed are those who gather in unity and brothers come together in unity, for there he will command the blessing. We know throughout the scriptures, the Bible says in John 17, that when we're one, the world will know that we are his disciples. But without humility, there is no unity. Without unity, there is no blessing. So humility is so essential for us. We go low, we go low, we go low. This is also important because it makes a culture of people who's not about our preferences. If I'm humble, I don't care how it affects me. Okay? So if the church does this or that, or if the thing does this or the whatever, it's not about me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's not about how it affects my life. It's not about my preferences and whether I like this style or that style, whether I like this place or that place, whether I like this. It's not about that. It's about the Lord. It's about his mission. And so as we go low... We get rid of our preferences, and then we're free to serve. And in serving and not seeking our own is when we find our real life. We think by holding on to our preferences, we're going to find real life because we get what we want. And when we get what we want, it's not what we thought it was because the way to get what you want is to follow the Lord. And so the Lord says, be humble, and in due time I will exalt you. So we do things that are unnoticed by others. We do them for a long time, and we don't complain because the goal is to be humble. The Lord notices if something affects us in a way that we don't like but is not that important, we don't care about our preferences. We let it go. We don't complain. We're not divisive. These are the truths that the word wants us to live out every day in our group. As we're gathered around people and I feel somewhat offended by something somebody just said, I don't attack them in that moment. I'm humble. I don't have to defend myself. Maybe later personally with them. I'm not saying you can't address it. You just do everything in humility. You're the least. The goal to walk into a room is to be the least one in the room. The least popular, the most unnoticed. That's the goal. And Jesus says, in due time, I will exalt you. To live sin is to serve and take on the identity as the least among all. To live sin is to serve and take on the identity as the least among all. The next word is focus. Focus. Living sin requires focus. Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow looks back and is fit for the kingdom of God. 
This is so important that living sent and following Jesus requires, you should write this down, single-minded devotion. Single-minded devotion. But so many times we're like this third guy. He says, Lord, I'll follow you, but first. How many of you are in that category already? Even maybe what I've said today, you're like, yes, Lord, but. Lord, I'll follow you, but I would like to do this first. Lord, I'll follow you, but not till I get my money right. Lord, I'll follow you, but not like that until this. Lord, I'll follow you, but not until that woman or man comes into my life like that. Lord, I'll follow you, but. And Jesus looks at you, and he fills that in, and he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Living sin requires focus. Focus on the Lord. Focus on his mission. Focus on the task at hand. It's like you have blinders on like a horse. You're focused. God gives direct commands, and so often we say, but first, my kids do this all the time, all the time. Hey, clean your room, but. I'll, yeah, I'll clean my room, but. I'll clean my room, but I'll, you know, I'll do this, but. We do this all the time. Kids do this. We do this with people. I, uh, when I run interns and stuff, interns do this all the time. It's super annoying because they're like, you don't pay me anyways. And I'm like, yeah, I know you're right, but you should do it. <laughs> they're like, yeah, I'll be there, but, you know, my girlfriend's in town. I'm like, what? Come on. Your girlfriend, okay, great. I'll be, but, yeah, I'd like to be this internship, but. Some of your bosses get frustrated with your employees. They're doing this all the time. You're like, yeah, I'll get to that, but first. And we treat the Lord like that. The Lord's like, I need you to give that right now. And we're like, well, but I got to get my money right. I need you to sacrifice. Well, eh, I'm going to live that out, but first. So what is your but first in your life? What are you thinking and saying to the Lord? What is God calling you to do? And your response is yes, but first. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. What is your but first? Focus. To live sin is to have a single-minded devotion to Jesus. It is obedience without qualification, following without hesitation. It is a yes and amen and a moving forward. No hesitation. The next word is opportunity. Opportunity. This is probably the most important section, I think. Luke 10, 2. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is so important. This is what God has worked on my heart the most. There is not a harvest problem. There is a labor problem. There is not an opportunity problem, only an obedience problem. The opportunities are endless. The question is, God is working all the time. The question is, are you? God is working all the time. The question is, are you? There is not a harvest problem. There is an obedience problem. There is endless opportunity but limited obedience. Therefore, our goal is to get the level of obedience to match the level of opportunity. To say, we see all the opportunity and we act in a way that's accordance with that. You, you got to hear me. There is never, never in your life an opportunity problem. Never. 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 Every single second of your day, there's an opportunity to impact someone for Jesus. Literally, he says, the harvest is plentiful. Which means there are lots of people that are going to get saved. There's a lot of lives to change, a lot of homes to restore, and that's going to happen. The harvest is plentiful. The Lord has done the work, but the laborers to reap the harvest are few. There's not enough people to go take care of the work that God has already done. We do not have an opportunity problem. We have an obedience problem. And the sooner we begin to match our level of obedience with the level of opportunity, we're going to really make a difference. Let me tell you, the opportunities are endless here in Falls Church. The opportunities are endless in your neighborhood. The opportunities are endless. And as we've seen, God will respond to acts of faith. I love this in Luke 10:9. He says, the kingdom of God has come near to you, meaning wherever you go, the kingdom goes with you. So if you're there, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near to lost people. The kingdom of God is near to brokenness. The kingdom of God is near to the abuse. The kingdom of God has come near. If you go there, the kingdom goes with you. And you represent the king in that place. And the opportunities are endless. We do not have an opportunity problem, only an obedience problem. 
I cannot force that I even think about my own life, how, how little sometimes I feel like I am obedient to the fact that every single place I go, every coffee shop I'm into, every restaurant I'm in, every errand I run, every single thing, every single thing, there's an opportunity. With every person I talk to, there's an opportunity. With every interaction I make, there's an opportunity. The problem with me is not an opportunity, it's obedience. The problem with us is not whether there's enough opportunity, it's obedience. There's enough work to do every, every single day. We need to be a people who put our obedience level with the level of opportunity. Just to give you an example, uh, our, one of our strategies with our lighthouses, which are our groups that meet during the week, is to every once out of every month you meet in public. So the idea is that nobody gets sequestered in their house too much. You, you, you do that sometimes, but then you meet in public, uh, and then you serve. And so once a month, technically, most of them, uh, they're supposed to meet in public. And so what happened the other day was one of the guys had told me, um, the guys and girls had split that time, and they all went to a different place, and they met in public. It was their time. And the whole point of meeting in public is this very point, that the kingdom of God goes there because you showed up. And so now you never know what God will happen. And we've had plenty of stories that have encouraged me in this. But he comes up to me last Sunday, and he tells me how there's somebody there. There's hardly anybody in the, in the place, but there's those five guys and then the waiter. And they're hanging out whatever. Eventually, get to talking to the guy, and all of a sudden, he opens up about his whole life. Starts weeping about a kid that he lost, all these different things going on in his life. And they were able to share the gospel with him in that moment. He came around from the counter. They laid hands on him and prayed for him. You, this could happen every day of your life, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. There was not an opportunity problem. There was an obedience problem that turned into an act of obedience. Because the obedience was there, the opportunity came up. There will be no opportunity for your life if there's no obedience. Come on, come on. So many of you want the opportunity without the obedience. You want the blessing without the sacrifice. You want the story without the awkward moment. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I'd love for God to work in my life. Would you? Because he will. He will. It's not an opportunity problem. The reason you don't have enough stories is because you haven't been obedient. There's plenty of stories. There's plenty of things God would use you to do. And me too. I'm just as guilty. If we would just be obedient, there is, a, there is not an opportunity problem. I, this has been wrecking me all week to say everywhere I go in this community, there is not an opportunity problem. There is an obedience problem. And for City Light to be a people of obedience, Lord willing, a people who take opportunities, who create opportunities out of our obedience. There's me and a bunch of people who are in this school every week. There's not an opportunity problem. There's no harvest problem here. There's a lot of need and a lot of people who need Jesus in every way. Wherever you go, the kingdom goes with you. Wherever you go, the kingdom goes with you. To live sin is to act obediently because every day there is an opportunity. It is to labor in the harvest. It is to pray for more and be more. Don't you love how he says there's a harvest problem? The harvest is, I mean, a harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. The first thing you should do is pray. And before you get stuck on, I'm just going to pray, then you go. <laughs> he's like, I need you to pray. And they're like, oh, cool, I can do that. And he's like, go. And you're like, oh, shoot, that's the harder one, you know. We need to pray and we need to go. That's the rhythm we hope to develop here and have been at City Light. Okay, we need to fly through the Rejoice is the next word. 72, return with joy. So they went out, they did this. They said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They're like, yo, this is crazy. And he's like, you want to hear something crazy? <laughs> They're like, it's amazing. He's like, yep, another day for me. I, I saw Satan fall from heaven. They're like, whoa. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy. Look at this. This is crazy. Nevertheless, don't be excited about this. But be excited, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is so important for us. Our main reason for rejoicing is not in the wonder of his work through us, but the wonder of his work in us. This is where the rubber meets the road to see it. If I want to be a person of faith, and I want to see God's supernatural things, and I step onto the battlefield with trust, and I risk, and I release control, and I go into the darkness to bring light, and I'm asking God to do things I cannot do to save lives and to heal and to restore. I'm asking God to do those things, and God begins to do those things through me. The danger is I love the work more than the person. The danger is I'm so excited that I'm powerful now. The danger is that I love a sign, I love a wonder, I love a miracle more than I love Jesus. 
And Jesus says, yes, I want to do signs, wonders, and miracles through you. Yes, you are my kingdom. I want to represent my name through your life. I want to send power through your bones and your body and your spirit to speak the name of Jesus with power and to see God do amazing things in your community. That's the point. But don't rejoice in that. And if we go forward and we see God's blessing more, that's not the rejoicing. We have to be a people who consistently seek in faith the great works of God, but who stay rejoicing and excited about the fact that he ever worked for us. The fact that God saved your heart. The fact that God gave you grace and mercy. The fact that God was kind and patient with you. That is always and forever our main reason for rejoicing. We celebrate Jesus and what he has done. This is our primary passion. We rejoice in what God has done for us more than what he does through us. To live sin is to constantly remember and rejoice in the free gift of salvation God has given you through Jesus. Okay, here's our little last two. Action is the next word, action. I'm summarizing the Good Samaritan story. You know, the guy, he falls, he gets hurt. Um, the robbers come and, and uh, beat him up. Uh, they take his money, they leave him on the side of the road. You guys know the story probably. And the first two religious people walk by, they don't do anything. The next guy walks by, and he's a Samaritan, which is basically a slang. It was like a, a, a not a good thing back then for them to say that. You have two religious Jews walk by. They do nothing. Those are supposed to be the people of God. You have a Samaritan walks by who's supposed to be an outcast, and he's the one that extends kindness. He walks by, and he shows compassion to him. He binds up his wounds. He pays for his stay. He takes care of him. So then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Here's the verse. They say, who, who's, my, who, who's the neighbor? The, the, the primary point of the text was to say, love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, who's my neighbor? And Jesus tells his story. And then Jesus says, the one who showed him, they say, who's, Jesus says, who's my neighbor? And they say, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. This is one of the primary questions that led my wife and I specifically to do foster care was we began to ask, how are we actually loving our neighbor as ourself? you thought about that At not just like are you doing nice things for them how are you loving them as yourself how do you love your neighbor like you love yourself how are you taking care of your neighbor like you take care of yourself if you were lost and destitute and broken how would you want people to treat you if you were in need and had no home how would you want people to treat you and just personally we began to get more wrecked by the fact that I don't know how many examples we can point to we love our neighbor as deeply as we love ourselves as deeply as we love our children as deeply as we love our family Jesus says, well, you got to go show mercy to those around you to do that. The question for you and for me is, do we really love our neighbor as ourself? As ourself. Love is not primarily sentimental, but sacrificial. For him to love his neighbor required risk. He could have gotten beat up by robbers. It required a loss of money. He gave a lot of money. He put him up to stay. It required inconvenience. I'm sure he was going somewhere else to do something else. He inconvenienced himself, gave up money, and risked his life to love somebody he'd never met before. And that's Jesus' example of what it means to love your neighbor. So the question for us is, are we taking action? The phrase for us on this is that we will not pass by and do nothing. This would be like a mantra for us, that we will not, will not drive by these houses and these communities and do nothing. You will not pull into your driveway every night and do nothing about the neighborhood that you live in. We will not see the need and come to this school and meet these kids and do nothing. We will not. We will not pass by and do nothing. We will not pass by and do nothing. And so often, this is what we're doing. We see people in need, we pass by and do nothing. We see things over here, we pass by and do nothing. And Jesus says, those are the examples of people who did not love their neighbor. And we as city lights say, no, not with us. As far as it is with us, we will not pass by and do nothing. Yesterday, a kid at Jay's basketball game got hurt in the middle of the game. Uh, and I had just been working so much on basketball with Jay that, you know, we'd kind of gotten beyond the, he was a good teammate. And I was like, that's great. Okay, now we got to work on dribbling, all right, the things that are really important. Uh, and so he begins, he makes a bat, you know, he's getting better. Uh, but this kid falls down, and he's, like, really hurt. And he's like, ah, he's on the ground, he's rolling around. Uh, and all his teammates were standing there, and Jay, it's like the proudest parent ever moment, right? Jay walks over, he checks on him, he picks him up, right, this, and he carries him over to the bench all by himself. It's just this one little kid, this little seven-year-old kid, this little seven-year-old kid. And I'm like, Jalen, you could never, you could be the worst basketball player in the entire world. You could do anything. I don't even care. That was the most amazing moment I've ever experienced with you in my life. This was so great to see the heart of compassion that flowed out of you for someone in need. And that's the example that I want to give to you and to me to say there might be a bunch of people standing around doing nothing, but we will not pass by and do nothing. We will extend compassion and mercy. We will act. We will act. We will act. 
Okay, to, to live sin is to see need and take action. It's an everyday effort to be merciful. It's a refusal to do nothing. Okay, last word, 10 words. Priority. We preached a whole sermon about this. It's called We Are All About Jesus on the podcast, so I'm not going to do a lot of that here. Uh, but the story in Luke 10 goes like this. Jesus comes into a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him. She had a sister named Mary who was sitting at his feet and listening. Martha was distracted with much serving. She got frustrated with Martha. She, I mean, with Mary. She said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Basically, she's doing nothing. Tell her to help me. And the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You have to see how intentional this is from Jesus. He spends the last five chapters, mission, 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 teach, heal, make a difference, serve, give your life away, sacrifice, take up your cross, follow me, go, 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 go. He's training them, training them, sending them, sending them. And how he ends Luke 10, which is the final send out, is with a story about prioritizing Jesus above service. He spends six chapters, serve, 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 go, 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 make a difference, yeah, let's go. And then he ends that in saying, hold up. The greatest priority of your life is the presence of Jesus. This is why we had the word priority. So no matter what we do, no matter what purpose we're working towards, no matter how missional and helpful and service-oriented we want to be, no matter how much we do for the community, the main call of a people who follow Jesus is to prioritize his presence above all things. Is to prioritize being with Jesus, not doing things for Jesus. So that as we do, we are empowered by a relationship with him. So it's so important for us to be a people who prioritize the presence of Jesus. This is why in our City Light Center, which hopefully will come to fruition soon, that we'll have a house of prayer, we'll have a place to prioritize the presence of Jesus. We will mix experiencing the presence and the power of Jesus with serving Jesus and experiencing his presence and power in the field. These things go hand in hand. But remember, the call is empowered by an encounter with Jesus. We have to prioritize his presence. So here's your ten words. Imitation, trust, ownership, sacrifice, humility, focus, opportunity, rejoice, action, and priority. And there's not an opportunity problem, just an obedience problem. So let's be a people of obedience and watch the Lord do great things. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for your love and your mercy that's been displayed in our lives. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for reaching out to us. We thank you for restoring our hearts. And Lord, we pray now, we pray, we pray that we would live sent by you, that we would live for your goals, your dreams, your ambitions, that we would imitate your life, that we wouldn't seek to do it our way, that we wouldn't seek to fulfill our dreams. Lord, would you use us, and would you create in us a heart of faith and a people of obedience? God, make that happen. One sermon can't do that, Lord, but your spirit can do that. Would you please make that happen in us? We love you. We bless you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand up with us as we prepare to sing and respond to the Lord. Uh, there's communion in the back, gluten-free in the middle. If that's what you need, take this time to respond to Jesus and trusting him, remembering what you have done, what he has done for you. Uh, and if you need prayer for anything, come down front. If you're not a follower of Jesus, please don't take communion. That's particularly to celebrate something that we believe. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, it's important for you to take Jesus, to believe in him today, to repent and follow him. So we'd love to talk to you more about that. We'll be down front if you need to pray, back front for communion. Either way, take a step and respond to Jesus today.